at the end of the movie, um, Leonardo DiCaprio ignores an email from his parents to open this picture of his friends and him at the beach. But yet, as the moviegoers were thinking, wait a second, seven minutes ago, he smothered a Swede. Like, he, <laughs> he strangled a, a dying Swede with his bare hands and saw, and saw four Americans and Germans get machine gunned in a marijuana field. And now he's getting the feels from watching this, this scanned <laughs> picture in his Excite email account. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about a certain travel-themed Leonardo DiCaprio movie that was filmed in Thailand 20 years ago. I guess there's this urban myth going around here at the moment. It's about a beach. A secret beach. On an island that no one can get to. Somewhere, paradise must exist. I just feel like everyone tries to do something different, but you always wind up doing the same damn thing. One kilometer. Two. Richard? I don't know. I'm thinking miles, not kilometers. I'm American. So? So let's go. And that's from the trailer for The Beach, which was filmed in the wake of DiCaprio's superstardom following Titanic. And this movie means a lot to me, in part because I was an extra in the movie, but also because I tried to sneak onto the set of the film when I was a backpacker in Thailand 20 years ago, and my essay about this travel stunt, Storming the Beach, pretty much marks the beginning of my travel writing career, since it appeared on the main page of Salon.com and was later selected by Bill Bryson for the Best American Travel Writing in 2000. You can also find it in my book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, which collects essays and commentary from my first decade as a travel writer. Now, in this episode, I revisit this essay, which was really fun to read after all these years. It really was a crazy adventure and a curious investigation into why we travel the way we do. In addition to the essay, I talk about the movie The Beach and how it turned out. I didn't really care for it. And I also talk about what it was like to backpack in Thailand at the very moment Hollywood was about to make that phenomenon famous. In addition to this, I explore the Alex Garland novel the movie was based on and how, in my opinion, that book gives a much truer evocation of travel than the movie does. And join me in this conversation is Jim Benning, who I met in Thailand a couple years later and who later became the editor of the groundbreaking online travel magazine World Hum. Now, I'll admit I sort of dominate this conversation in part because what happened in Thailand 20 years ago was such an essential part of my travel life and my writing career. Be warned, there's a ton of movie spoilers in this conversation as we discuss things like travel culture, how it would be hard to remake this movie in 2019, and how Maya Beach, where the movie was filmed back then, has recently closed to tourists because too many people have gone there in the years since the film came out. This episode is brought to you by Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories for vagabonders. You know, I don't recall exactly what Leonardo DiCaprio used for a backpack in that movie, but that movie was filmed in an era when the packs that people used for travel were really designed for backcountry expeditions, whereas the packs that Tortuga has developed in the past decade are designed precisely for the kind of lightweight, long-term travel I know and love. To take a look at Tortuga's backpacks, go to rolfpotts.com tortuga. And if you see something you'd like to order for yourself, you can get 10% off the cost of the order by using the promo code DEVIATE. This episode is also brought to you by my longtime friends at Airtrex, the multi-stop and round-the-world flight booking service that has been catering to long-term travelers for almost 30 years now. They sent me around the world through Asia this winter, and it was fantastic. 
Now, even if you don't have a specific itinerary in mind yet for your own vagabonding journey, Airtrex has some great trip planning tools to help you tinker around and dream about the adventure. Check them out at Airtrex.com to learn more and plan your journey. All right, here's my deep dive into Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach and my experiences on the set of that movie. In a second, I'm going to read an essay that sort of started my career uh, almost exactly 20 years ago. It's called Storming the Beach, and it appeared in the Best American Travel Writing 2000. It later was the first chapter in my first narrative book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. Um, and it's really about me trying to sneak onto the set of a Leonardo DiCaprio film movie. And eventually in this episode, I want to talk about the movie. I want to talk about the Alex Garland book uh, that that movie is based on. And I want to talk about my essay too, but then also the travel conditions of 1999. So I, I brought in a contemporary of mine from 1999 and that era of travel, Jim Benning. Jim Benning, how are you doing? I am doing great, Rolf. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, do you remember where exactly you were in 1999? You, I was, when I was writing Vagabonding, you, you came through Thailand and we hung out for a while in 2001. I think it was the first time we met in person. What were you doing in 1999 and was the beach on your radar then? Yeah. It, well, in 1999, I was in Los Angeles. I was working as a freelance writer, um, doing magazine stories and um, really early web writing. Um, and so my big foray into sort of backpacker travel that I think we'll talk about didn't come until, uh, probably 2001 and that trip in which I uh, met you in Thailand. And did you, at what point did the beach come on your radar? Was it the book or the filming of the movie or something else? It, I think I was aware of the book, but hadn't read it. Um, and I suspect that your story, uh, in, on Salon put it on my radar. Uh, at least more clearly. Okay, that's interesting, and I'll read that story in a second. But I think that it was such a rare, it was such a specialized world that until it became a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, the idea of backpacking wasn't on too many people's radars. Um, and and the the essay I'm about to read, "Storming the Beach," was a was a cover story on Salon, and so I, I think it strangely introduced people to that world. I'm going to read it now again. Here's a story about me 20 years ago trying to sneak onto the set of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie in Thailand. Storming the Beach, an essay by Rolf Potts. The Salon.com tagline says, an attempt to infiltrate a movie set on a heavily guarded Thai island results in a rollicking postmodern travel adventure somewhat starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Day six. January 22nd, 1999, Storming the Beach, Prelude. It is three o'clock in the morning and Lomudi Beach is possibly the only stretch of sand on PP Don Island that is completely deserted. The only buildings here are small, sagging, bamboo and thatched dwellings that probably house Thai fishermen before the onslaught of sun-starved European and North American tourists turn those fishermen into bellboys and t-shirt hawkers. The high tide line here yields a sodden crust of garbage, plastic water bottles, rubber sandals, cigarette butts, but this detritus is only evidence of the boaters, snorkelers, and sunburned masses who haunt other parts of the island. Devoid of dive shops, pineapple vendors, and running water, Lomudi is quiet and empty. I hear the rhythmic thump of a long-tail boat somewhere in the darkness, and I realize that my moment is at hand. 
Gathering up a sealed plastic bag of supplies, I wade out to the shallow waters to meet the rickety wooden craft that will take me across the small stretch of the Andaman Sea to the forbidden shores of Pipi Don's sister island, a majestic cliff-girded island called Pipi Lay. Pipi Lay Island is not forbidden because of ancient tribal rituals, secret nuclear tests, or hidden pirate treasure. Pipi Lay is forbidden because it's currently the filming location of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie called The Beach. My sole mission in this dim light is to swim ashore and infiltrate the set. I am not a gossip journalist, a Leo-obsessed film nut, or a paparazzo. I'm a backpacker. The primary motivation for my mission is not an obsession with Hollywood, but simply a vague yearning for adventure. I wish I could put this yearning into more precise terms, but I can't. All I can say is that adventure can be hard to come by these days. Admittedly, I have a daunting task before me. In the wake of ongoing environmental protests, Leo's purported fear of terrorism, and the obligatory packs of screaming pubescent females, security on PP Lay has reached paramilitary proportions. Thus, I have given up on the notion of a frontal assault. Instead, I plan to swim ashore via Losama Bay, change into dry khakis and a casual shirt, and, under cover of darkness, hike across the island to the filming location. I'm not sure what will happen if I make it this far, but, summary execution accepted, I am prepared to cheerfully deal with whatever fate awaits me. This attitude has much less to do with optimism than with the simple fact that after one obsessive week of preparation, I don't really have a plan. Day 1, January 17, 1999, Decapitation. Thai Air Flight 211 from Bangkok to Phuket has been taxiing around for the last 20 minutes, and there seems to be no end in sight. The European package tourists in the seats around me are getting fidgety, but this is only because they have not set foot on actual soil since Stockholm or Frankfurt. I, on the other hand, have been in Thailand for two weeks, and I've already faced the numbing horrors of Bangkok traffic. There, amid the creeping tangle of automobiles, buses, tuk-tuks, humidity, and fumes, one is left with two psychological options, nirvanic patience or homicidal insanity. Patience won out for me, and I am taking this present delay in stride. In my lap sits a pile of notes and clippings about the movie production, most of it from Thai tabloid newspapers. Considering that culling hard facts from tabloid gossip is a challenge akin to discerning fate from sheep intestines, my mind frequently strays as I dig through the information. I wonder, for instance, what would happen if Leonardo DiCaprio's fans were able to overwhelm his bodyguards. In every part of Asia I've visited, I've noticed how young girls act in the presence of their pop heroes, and it's somewhat unsettling. At one level, there's a screamy, swoony, Elvis-on-the-Ed Sullivan show innocence to it all, but at a deeper level, I sense an intuitive desperation. After all, not only is this part of Asia a survivalist bizarre society, where patiently standing in line is not part of the manner code, it also runs on a patriarchal system where young girls simply have fewer options in life. If Leo's bodyguards ever fail him, I wouldn't be all that surprised by a frenzied display of grim, no-future pathos, a spectacle by comparison that would make punk rock nihilism seem like a gentle tenant from the Sermon on the Mount. I keep getting this picture in my head of the handsome, young, blonde movie star being lovingly, worshipfully torn to pieces, of adolescent girls brawling over ragged bits of spleen and femur. Several weeks before I came to Thailand, I read the Alex Garland novel upon which the movie is based. In the story, a strange man presents the main character, a young English traveler named Richard, with a map that leads to an unspoiled beach utopia hidden in a national park in the Gulf of Thailand. 
The Lord of the Flies-style moral degeneration that results after Richard's arrival on the beach made for a thoroughly engrossing read. After finishing the book, I toyed with the idea of emulating the plot, of finding some like-minded travelers, hiring a fishing boat into the restricted national park islands, and seeking out an unspoiled paradise. I ultimately discarded this notion, however, when I discovered that tabloid obsession with the film had already rendered my idea unoriginal. When I arrived in Thailand and the tabloid hype still hadn't let up, a new idea struck me. Why not live the reach in reverse? Instead of seeking out a secret, untouched island, why not explore the most scrutinized island in all of Thailand? Why not try washing ashore on the movie set itself? The pure novelty of this notion has led me to this point, seat 47K, Thai Air Flight 211, which has now finally begun to accelerate down the runway. As the plane lifts off the ground and banks for a southward turn, a view of Bangkok fills my window. Below, urban Thailand spans out around the Chao Phraya River in a symmetrical brown-gray grids that from this altitude look like the outer armor from a 1970s sci-fi movie spaceship. For an instant, the Earth looks artificial and foreign, as if it's been taken over by aliens. The aliens, of course, are us. Day 2, January 18, 1999, The Hokey Pokey. Though historically influenced by traders from China, Portugal, Malaysia, and India, the beach villages of Phuket Island now seem to belong to Northern Europe as much as any place. Western tourists abound, the prices are steep, and miniature golf is readily available. Since the cast and crew of the beach sleep on Phuket, I came here with the intention of scouting some information before I set off for Phi Lay. Now that I've arrived, however, I'm a bit stumped on just how I'm supposed to scout out information. Mostly, I've just been walking around and talking with other travelers, which is not that much different from what I did on Khao San Road in Bangkok. But talking with other wanderers is telling in and of itself, since nobody in the backpacker crowd wants to admit even the slightest interest in DiCaprio or the filming of the movie. Instead, nearly everyone I've met talks about their own travels in wistful terms eerily similar to the characters in Garland's book. It would be difficult to characterize the nuances from each of my beachfront street cafe conversations this afternoon, but I can easily summarize. Phuket, it is generally agreed, is a tourist shithole, best reserved for anthropological studies of fat German men who wear speedos. For a ghost of Phuket past, try the islands of Malaysia or Cambodia. Laos, incidentally, is still charming and unspoiled like rural Thailand in the 1980s. The hill tribe trekking around Sapa in Vietnam is full of wonder and surprise as Chiang Mai was a decade ago. Goa and Koh Phangan still can't live up to their early 1990s legacy, and rumor crowns Central America as the new cutting edge of rave. Sulawesi is part and parcel Bali 10 years ago. Granted, I've condensed what I've heard, but for all the talk, you'd think that paradise expired sometime around 1989. I am currently staying at the $5 a night Onon Hotel in Phuket City, where a few interior scenes for the beach will be shot in March. Since it is an official movie location, I had secretly hoped it would be brimming with an eccentric array of film groupies, security personnel, and rampaging Leo worshippers. Instead, the open-air lobby is filled with moths, mopeds, and old-Thai men playing chess. Earlier this evening, I spent a couple of hours here chatting and sipping Mekong whiskey with Anne and Todd, a young couple from Maryland. Our conversation started when I heard Anne quoting a book review of the beach from Phuket's English newspaper, which described backpack travelers as, quote, uniformly ill-clad, all bearing Lonely Planet guidebooks and wandering from one shabby guesthouse to the next in search of banana pancakes, tawdry tie-dyes, and other trash, particularly their own, end quote. 
Since we agreed we prefer the Whitman-esque stereotype of backpack travel, pocketless of a dime, purchasing the pick of the earth and whatnot, this led to a discussion of what actually distinguishes backpack travelers from tourists. On the surface, it's a simple distinction. Tourists leave home to escape the world, while travelers leave home to experience the world. Tourists, and added wittily, are merely doing the hokey-pokey, putting their right foot in and taking the right foot out, calling themselves world travelers while experiencing very little. Todd and I agreed that this was a brilliant analogy, but after a few more drinks, we began to wonder where backpack travelers fit into the same paradigm. This proved to be a problem. Do travelers, unlike tourists, keep their right foot in a little longer and shake it all about? Do travelers actually go so far as to do the hokey pokey and turn themselves around, thus gaining a more authentic experience? Is that what it's all about? The effects of alcohol pretty much eliminated serious reflection at the time, but now that my buzz is gone, I can only conclude that the hokey pokey, whether done well or poorly, is still just the hokey pokey. Or to put it another way, regardless of one's budget, itinerary, and choice of luggage, the act of travel is still at its essence a consumer experience. Do we travel so that we can arrive where we started and know the place for the first time? Or do we travel so that we can arrive where we started having earned the right to take T.S. Eliot out of context? The fact that it's too late to know the difference makes my little mission to P.P. Lay less quirky than it sounds. Day 3, January 19, 1999, Floored of the Lies. Except for the fact that I met the producer of The Beach and somehow ended up stealing his Italian leather screenplay binder, today hasn't been all that eventful. Mostly I've just been rereading Garland's novel. Tomorrow I leave for Fifi Dawn. This morning's Bangkok Post featured a press statement from DiCaprio who declared his love of Thailand, his affection for the Thai people, and his sincere concern for the local ecology. The ecology comment comes on the heels of environmental controversy that has been brewing since last fall when 20th Century Fox announced it was going to plant 100 coconut palms on the P.P. Lay movie set. The reasoning, apparently, was that P.P. Lay didn't quite meet the Hollywood standards of what an island in Thailand should look like. The months following on to the coconut palm announcement have been fraught with protests, promises, legal action, threatened legal action, publicity stunts, and rumors. Thai environmental activists claimed that the palms would disrupt the island's ecosystem. 20th Century Fox responded by reducing the number of trees to 60. When an activist derided this as a meaningless gesture, 20th Century Fox, perhaps misunderstanding the difference between ecology and landscape maintenance, paid a $138,000 damage deposit to the Thai Royal Forestry Department and planted the trees anyway. Now environmentalists are claiming that producers flaunted their earlier compromise and brazenly planted no less than 73 trees at topsoil depths up to one meter deeper than had previously been agreed. While the precise facts of this controversy would require a Warren Commission reunion, the fact remains that 20th Century Fox's actions are a drop in the environmental bucket compared to the large-scale tourist development that has besieged Southeast Asia's islands over the past decade. Garland alludes to this phenomenon in his novel. He says, quote, Set up in Bali, Kopanyan, Kotao, Boracay, and the hordes are bound to follow. There's no way you can keep it out of the lonely planet, and once that happens, it's countdown to doomsday, end quote. Countdown to doomsday kind of makes a person wonder if Garland was aware of the irony when he sold his novel's film rights to a media entity that makes Lonely Planet look like an obscure pamphlet publisher based out of someone's Vanagon. Protests aside, the real environmental impact of the filming won't be determined until after the movie appears in theaters, 
and half a million starstruck teenagers from places like Nebraska and New Brunswick simultaneously decide that they too are going to buy a ticket to Thailand and seek out the last paradise on Earth. In a perfect world, I never would have had to sneak onto the veranda of the Cape Panwa Resort Hotel and skulk around while the cast and crew of the beach ate dinner. Unfortunately, my more prosaic efforts at intelligence gathering, which involved wandering around town and sending emails to friends of friends, had yielded little. Playing spy for a few hours was probably the only way to accurately gauge what I was up against. Now, since I am the type of person who would rather hike an extra eight miles than try and charm a park ranger into accepting a bribe, I was not filled with confidence as I took a motorcycle taxi out to Cape Panwa earlier that evening. I'd read on the internet that the resort hotel had hired extra security guards, and I was not looking forward to schmoozing my way past them. Miraculously, despite my patchy beard, motorcycle-tossed hair, and sweat-salted backpacker attire, none of the hotel personnel gave me a second glance as I strolled past the reception desk and into the veranda area. I immediately spotted the cast sitting along a long table across from the restrooms. Leo was not among them, but I could tell from a glance that everyone there vaguely corresponded to various characters in the novel. Someone in casting has done his job well. Overcoming an innate juvenile sense of dread, I moved to an empty table overlooking the swimming pool and ordered a Manhattan. I'd never ordered a Manhattan before in my life, but since it cost more than my hotel room, I figured it would probably contain lots of alcohol. I felt extremely out of place and I needed something to calm my nerves. I sipped my drink and tried to act aloof. It was easy to tell the film people from the other hotel guests. The movie folks ate and drank and laughed. Everyone else peered around silently. I'm sure that half the people there were waiting around in the off chance that Leo would walk through. I also suspect that with the possible exception of a chubby little Japanese girl who kept standing up in her chair to gawk over at the cast, those exact same people would pretend not to notice if Leo actually showed up. By the time Andrew McDonald arrived and sat down at the table next to me, I'd washed my Manhattan down with a couple of Heinekens. My anxiety was mostly gone, and the only reason I hadn't sauntered over to schmooze with the cast was that it simply seemed like a stupid idea. Instead, I'd chosen the more conservative option of sitting around and doing nothing. I took the appearance of MacDonald, the film's producer, as a good sign. Aside from DiCaprio, MacDonald was the only person from the movie that I could have recognized on sight. From one table away, he looked even younger and skinnier than he did in newspaper photos. Sitting there, gangly, boyish, and pink-toed in his Birkenstocks, he looked like someone who was sullenly waiting to get picked last for a game of kickball. Figuring it was the night's best chance, I feigned courage and walked up to him. Excuse me, I said, uh, you're the producer, right? Oh, I'm sorry, that's someone else you're thinking of, he replied, looking everywhere but at me. No, I told him, you're Andrew MacDonald. MacDonald seemed to cringe as he looked up at me. I wasn't sure if he always looks like this or if he expected me to sucker punch him. Either way, I took it as my cue to keep talking. I decided to take a neutral, vaguely journalistic approach. I was wondering if I might be able to interview some of your actors or spend some time on the set of your movie, I said to him. Is that possible? It's a closed set, he said wearily. What about the actors? Do you mind if I chat with them a bit? We're not allowing interviews. I don't necessarily need to talk to Leo. I mean, anyone will do. MacDonald took out a pen and wrote down a phone number on a napkin. This is the number for Sarah Clark, he said. She's a publicist. You'll have to go through her if you want to do any interviews, but at most you'll probably just get an interview with me. He didn't look too thrilled by this possibility. So are you saying there's no chance I can get onto the set even if I swim there? 
I said this as sort of a half joke, hoping it might scare up some clues about how to get past a security cordon around P.P. Lay. No chance on the island, he said. You can apply as an extra, but that won't be until next month on Phuket and Krabi. I was an extra once in a movie called Dr. Giggles, I said, but that was like seven years ago. This utterly irrelevant trivia nugget seemed to disarm McDonald a little bit. Dr. Giggles, he said, smirking. Yeah, are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. I'm sorry. He stared off at the pool, sighed, and then absently checked his watch. It's been a long day, he said, almost apologetically. I didn't bother him when he stood up to go. The events that transpired as I tried to leave the veranda make so little sense that they are somewhat difficult to recount. First, I had a problem paying the bill since the hotel staff assumed that I was with the movie crew. When I asked the waitress for my check, she just frowned and walked off. When she hadn't returned after 10 minutes, I tracked her down at the cash register. I need to pay my bill, I told her. I figured it would be bad manners to sponge drinks after having already interrupted the producer's dinner. The waitress gave me another strange look, then pushed a piece of paper in front of me. Just write down your room number, she said. Can I pay now in cash, I said. I'm not really sure why I was being so insistently ethical, one Manhattan and two Heinekens pale in the face of a $40 million film budget. The waitress shrugged, and I gave her the money. I turned to leave, and as I was passing the reception desk, the waitress came running after me. Your friend forgot this, she said, handing me a yellow cloth satchel. Standing there in the lobby of the Cape Panwa Resort Hotel, the word friend caught me off guard. I couldn't imagine possibly who she could be talking about. I opened the cloth satchel and took out a black Ilbasante binder. Embossed onto the leather cover were the words, The Beach, and in the lower right-hand corner, Andrew MacDonald. Putting the binder back into the satchel, I thanked the waitress and, just moments after my valorous display of Sunday school ethics over the drink tab, walked out the front door. I spent the motorcycle taxi ride back to Phuket City trying to think of practical justifications for making off with Andrew McDonald's screenplay binder. Since the binder was empty, I couldn't really think of any beyond using it as a kind of Hail Mary collateral if things got ugly when I invaded the film set. Considering that the phone number McDonald gave me turned out to belong to a confused Thai family in Yala province, the personally embossed keepsake is the closest thing I had to an asset. Sitting in my hotel, I imagined myself on the shores of Phi Lay, lashed to one of those illegally planted coconut palms and bleeding from the ears. I am being flogged with rubber hoses by a gang of vigilante set designers, dolly grips, and script supervisors, and for the sake of reverie, they are all female, vixen-like, and dressed in bikinis. McDonald swaggers over. He is wielding a scimitar and has somehow managed to grow a pencil-thin mustache since the last time I saw him. Closed set, he bellows, fiercely raising the blade above his head. About to lose consciousness, I muster one last ounce of energy. I have your personally embossed Ilbasante Italian leather screenplay bonder, McDonald, I sneer. Kill me and you'll never be able to find out where I've hidden it. A look of horror washes over the producer's face. Not my personally embossed Ilbasante Italian leather screenplay binder, he screams, dropping the scimitar into the sand. With a sudden look of resolve, he turns to the bikini-clad lynch mob. Untie the intruder, he commands, and tell that DiCaprio schmuck that his services are no longer needed. He turns to me with a flourish. I think we've found our new leading man. A bit overdone as reveries go, but I'll just blame that on the movies. They seem to make a convenient scapegoat. Day 5, January 21st, 1999, Heart of Dorkness. 
I'm starting in on my second day on PP Dawn Island, but for reasons that will become obvious, I didn't write anything yesterday, day four, so I'll try to cover both days in this dispatch. To put things succinctly, things have gone sour in a way that I had not expected. From a tactical standpoint, my mission is progressing nicely. The soaring cliffs of PP Lay stand just two and a half miles across the sea from my roost on Long Beach. A few casual conversations with some PP Lay dive operators have provided enough physiographical cues for me to devise a landing strategy. I even found a deserted beach, Lomudi, where I can make a quiet departure in the dead of night. The problem, however, is that I'm having trouble explaining why I wanted to go there in the first place. I arrived here yesterday morning to discover that all the affordable lodging on Long Beach had been sold out. Welcoming the aesthetic novelty of sleeping on the beach itself, I left my backpack with a friendly restaurant manager and set off to scope things out. Technically, the island of PP Dawn is part of the same national marine park system that protects PP Lay from permanent tourist development. A person could never tell by looking, however, as an unbroken progression of bungalows and beach resorts lines the entire southeastern seaboard. Tonsai, an old Thai Muslim village on the isthmus that connects the two halves of the island, is clotted with luxury hotels, dive shops, restaurants, souvenir peddlers, and discos. The only evidence of Muslim heritage is that some of the women selling Marlboros and Pringles wear headscarves. When I met a Danish couple on the long-tail taxi boat from Tonsai back to Long Beach, I was immediately struck by their similarity to a couple of characters from the beach. In Alex Garland's novel, Richard travels to the beach Utopia in the company of Etienne and Françoise, a young French couple he meets on Kaosan Road. Now, Granted, Jan and Marta weren't French, but they certainly seemed graceful, companionable, and adventurous enough to merit a comparison. When I discovered that they too were being forced to sleep on the beach that night, I took this as a sign that I should invite them along for my adventure. I pitched the idea over a pad thai dinner on Long Beach. Since they were both familiar with the novel, I skipped straight to my plans to rent a boat and steal over to P.P. Lay. When I saw how this idea entertained them, I backtracked a bit and told them about my experience with Andrew McDonald the day before. By the time I got to my fantasy about the bikini-clad lynch mom, I had the Danes in stitches. You Americans have such wonderful thoughts, Jan said between gasps for air. I saw this as my chance. Why don't you two join me, I said. Yes, Jan said, still laughing. Why don't we join you? Perfect, I said. This is too perfect. Let's find a boat and leave tonight. The Danes stopped laughing. Are you serious? Marta asked. I'm 100% completely serious. Let's leave tonight, I said. But uh, we thought you were kind of telling, like, a joke, Marta said. This threw me a little. Uh, would you rather leave tomorrow? Jan and Marta exchanged a raised eyebrow look, which I took to mean either this guy is really daring or this guy's a total dork. Judging from the exchange that ensued, I'd put money on the latter. If you really want to go to the movie, Jan said, why don't you just wait until they finish on P.P. Lay and go work as an extra as they film in Phuket or Krabi? That's not the point, I insisted. The adventure is going to the place where you aren't supposed to go. The charm is living the novel backwards, going to an exclusive and secretive beach that also happens to be famous. The island is guarded like an army, Marta said. You'll never make it. And even if you do, Jan said, what will you do when you get there? And by this point, I felt like whipping out the novel and showing Jan and Marta that they were saying the wrong lines. The issue was getting unnecessarily complicated. In the story, Françoise and Etienne are much more agreeable. I don't know what we'll do when we get there, I said. Walk on the set, I guess. You know, see what happens when we violate their community, just like in the book. Jan and Marta conferred for a moment in Danish and then turned back for me. 
Why are you doing this? Marta asked with a tone of concern. Since I thought I'd already answered that question, all I could do was stammer. Ultimately, I changed the subject to the relief, I think, of everyone present. In my mind, the reason why I'm doing this should have been obvious, or more accurately, the reason why I'm doing this should be irrelevant. Now that I've had time to think about it, I'd say the motivation behind my mission has a lot to do with the kind of traveler's angst that I've been feeling ever since I started my Asian journey. I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels it. In his 1975 essay, The Loss of the Creature, Walker Percy attributes traveler's angst to the idea that our various destinations have been, quote, appropriated by the symbolic complex which has already formed in the sightseer's mind, end quote. In other words, the angst originates not in watching fat, speedo-wearing German men defile once pristine beaches. The angst comes from our own media-driven notions of how those beaches should look like in the first place. We cannot hike into the Himalayas without drawing comparisons to the IMAX film we saw last summer. We cannot taste wine on the Seine without recalling a funny scene from an old Meg Ryan movie. We cannot get lost in a South American jungle without thinking of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's novel that we read in college. It is the expectation itself that robs a bit of authenticity from the destinations that we seek out. Even the unexpected comes with its own set of expectations. In Garland's novel, Richard interprets what he sees at his beach utopia through the language of Vietnam War movies he saw as a teenager. Percy attempts to explain this phenomenon in his essay. The highest point, he writes, the term of the sightseer's satisfaction, is not the sovereign discovery of the thing before him, it is rather the measuring up of the thing to the criterion of the preformed symbolic complex. The challenge this poses for the discerning traveler is that here at the cusp of a new millennium, mass media has not only monopolized the symbolic complex of wonder and beauty, it has recently upped the ante by an extra 73 palm trees. Thus, by storming the beach at Kopi-P Lei, I hope to travel behind the curtain, to break out from the confines of the consumer experience by attempting to break into the creation of the consumer experience. In this way, I guess I could say that my mission is part of a greater struggle for individuality in the information age, an attempt to live outside the realm of who I'm supposed to be. At least that's what I would have told the Danes yesterday had I had my wits about me. Today, I successfully managed to avoid the Danes entirely. After sneaking a shower at a poolside changing room in Tonsai, I set off to find a boat that would take me to P.P. Lay. Since stealth is an important consideration in my mission, choosing the right boat was a painfully difficult process. Actually, choosing a boat really wasn't a choice at all, since my only realistic option was to hire one of the long-tail boats to transport people and goods among the islands. Considering that these boats cut through the water as gracefully as bulldozers, none of them have mufflers, my only real option was finding a driver who sympathized with my cause and wouldn't try to cheat me. Just before dinner, I found a seemingly earnest boat driver who agreed to take me to P.P. Lay for 2,500 baht. We leave in a few hours. It's already well after dark, and I've stashed my backpack under one of the old fishing huts here at Lamudi. In addition to dry clothes, I've sealed my passport and a few traveler's checks into my plastic swimming bag. Andrew McDonald's Italian leather screenplay binder, I'm afraid, was too heavy and will have to stay behind. I pace the shoreline, killing time before the arrival of the longtail boat. Tiny bits of phosphorescence glow star blue at the edge of the waves, just like they do in the book. Day 6th, January 22nd, 1999, storming the beach at P.P. Lay continued. It occurs to me that I don't know the name of the small sun-brown Thai man who sits astern from me in the darkness. I hate to write him off as a minor character, as boat driver number one, so I've started to think of him as Jimmy. 
He just seems like someone who should be named Jimmy, trustworthy, average, unassuming. Even in the dark, he wears a wide-brimmed cloth cap. Neither of us has spoken since I waded out and climbed into the long tail back at Lomudi. Both of us know that we're breaking the law, and both of us know that P.P. Lay is patrolled by police speedboats for the duration of the movie shoot. I'm hoping that our drop-off site at Losama Bay, instead of Maya Bay, where the film set is located, isn't patrolled very closely at 3.30 in the morning. Unlike most of the long-tail operators I met in Tonsai, Jimmy is a quiet, introspective man. When we were negotiating the trip yesterday afternoon, he nodded silently as I took out a dive shop map of P.P. Lay and told him where I wanted to go. At first I thought he couldn't speak any English, but he cut me short when I tried to use my Thai phrasebook on him. Three in the morning okay, he said. I know La Samambe. I suspect he's working to support a wife and kids someplace. 2,500 baht, which is about $70, is no small sum, but I've written it off as an inevitability. Edmund Hillary had to hire Sherpas. I had to hire Jimmy. Perhaps in an effort to accommodate me, or just as likely an effort to conceal me, Jimmy has spread a rattan mat out on the ribbed floor of the boat. Lying on the mat, clutching my plastic bag, all I can see is the bright wash of stars above me. Oddly, the thumping rattle of the outboard motor somehow makes the stars seem closer, like they are a glittering kind of music video that hovers just over the boat. My thoughts drift as the boat pushes through the water. I think about my first week in Thailand when I was quick-dosing an anti-malaria drug called larium. Mild psychosis is a side effect of the drug, and sure enough, on my second day of taking the pills, I punched my fist through the door of my hotel room on Khao San Road. It was certainly one of the more violent acts of my adult life, and to this day I have trouble making sense of it. I don't know why I did it, all I remember is how I felt in the moments before security arrived to kick me out of the hotel. It was not a feeling of dread or shock, as one might expect, but rather a bemused, incongruent sense of wonder. Certainly Leonardo DiCaprio must feel the same way each morning when he wakes up and walks into a world that is staring at him. What the hell, I remember thinking to myself, has happened to me? After about 20 minutes, Jimmy suddenly cuts the outboard motor. The silence leaves my ears ringing. I sit up on the mat uncertainty. Are we there? I whisper. The boat rocks as Jimmy crawls up to join me on the mat. He pushes his face right up in front of mine, and I can see that he's holding a finger to his lips. He rests a hand on my shoulder and peers past the bow into the darkness. We stay this way for about ten minutes. Strangely, I am not nearly as nervous as I was on the veranda of the Cape Panwa Resort Hotel. Swimming and hiking are tangible activities, far more cut and dry than schmoozing and coaxy information. But swimming and hiking are not the only obstacles that remain. Jimmy curses softly and moves back to the stern of the long tail. Only then do I hear it, the sound of an approaching speedboat. Before long, our wooden boat is awash with the beam of a spotlight. I try to hide myself under the rattan map, but it's a useless gesture. Embarrassed more than anything, I lie awkwardly in the bottom of the long tail while Jimmy and someone in the speedboat yell back and forth in Thai. I absently note that the sealing oil on the hole boards has a pleasant, cedary scent. Surprisingly, Jimmy yells in his apologetic tone for only a couple of minutes before the speedboat cuts its spotlight and leaves. Okay, Jimmy says. It's okay, I say, coming out from my hiding place. Okay, Jimmy says. I move to the stern next to Jimmy. He rests a hand on my shoulder. Okay, he says for the third time. I give him the thumbs up and he starts the outboard and turns our boat 180 degrees. 
It's a couple of beats before I realize that we're headed back for Kopp Dawn. Isn't this where we just came from, I ask, pointing my finger ahead into the darkness. Okay, Jimmy says. It takes me a good five minutes before I can undo the knot on my plastic swim bag. I'm not particularly proud of what I'm about to do, but I feel like I've come too far to give up now. I crawl back over to Jimmy and I shove the traveler's checks underneath his nose. Bakshish, I say, gesturing back at where we last saw the speedboat. Actually, I'm not even sure if bakshish is the correct word for bribe in this part of the world. I feel a little doltish to say it, like I'm trying to speak Spanish by throwing out English phrases in a speedy Gonzalez voice. Jimmy puts his hand on my shoulder in what I now take as a wizened parental gesture. He looks down sympathetically at my traveler's checks. Boatman okay, he says. Island man, maybe okay. Movie man, no. Movie man, not okay. He gently pushes my checks away. Yes, okay, I say, still waving the traveler's checks, but he just shakes his head. The very trustworthiness that led me to hire Jimmy is now backfiring on me. Jimmy knows that even if I manage to bribe my way past the various levels of Thai security on the island, a film crew with a $40 million budget will be less than impressed by my presence. Jimmy is simply trying to save me the money and stress of going through this whole ordeal. I'm at a loss to convince him how that very ordeal is exactly what I want to experience. Which Speedy Gonzalez catchphrases would make Jimmy grasp the pitch and moment that drive this enterprise? What can I say that will make Jimmy appreciate the intricate shadow-like ironies of travel culture? How can I convince him that this mission is not merely another variation of the hokey pokey? My tongue is ineffectual in its pivots. P.P. Lay recedes in the darkness behind us. We go through strange rituals to prove things to ourselves in life. As we near our trash-encrusted starting point, I insist that Jimmy cut the engine early so I can jump out of the long tail and swim the last 200 meters back to the abandoned fishing village. Since simple epiphany doesn't screen well in test markets, I'll tell people that I swam those 200 meters with a defiant sense of triumph. I will tell them that each step wading ashore was a giant leap for mankind. I will tell them that I walked through the valley of the shadow of death and that I feared no evil, for the valley of the shadow of death will soon feature guided tours and a snack bar. Again, that was Storming the Beach, which appeared in Salon, on Salon.com in January of 2000. And Jim, and you said you read this essay back in its original incarnation? I did, yeah. Uh, you know, Salon was really the, the publication that put um, kind of contemporary travel writing um, uh, front and center on, on my radar. I, um, you know, I, I, Growing up, I think reading um, newspapers, magazines, um, which largely, as you know, consisted of um, sort of where to go, what to eat, kind of service-oriented travel writing. And um, when I started reading Salon and these stories that were, you know, less about uh, where to stay and more just sort of great narratives, I was really kind of bowled over by it. Um, and I remember your story um, having that effect on me. It was just, um, you know, you weren't trying to sell me anything. You were just um, telling a, a really fun, great story that kind of also looked at um, contemporary travel. Yeah, it's interesting to revisit that essay after all these years because um, despite the fact that it's sort of this gonzo story where I'm trying to sneak onto a film set, 
Um, I actually covered a lot of fairly serious explorations of what it means to travel and why we seek out the places where we want to seek. And I think you're probably an exception, but a lot of people may not have read about that kind of thing had it not involved a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, because it's easy to forget that in 1999, Leo was like the biggest star in the world. Titanic was still in its in its flush, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he was huge. Yeah. And then um, you talk about salon travel. Actually, it's it's funny how specific personalities can be connected to this. Um, that's Don George, the editor Don George, um, who ended up sort of being a mentor to me. And um, later, you became one of my editors at World Hum. And, and um, World Hum, which was later acquired by the Travel Channel and had, had a great heyday in the 2000s, was really modeled on salon travel, that when salon decided to kill its travel department, uh, you, you and Mike Yesis stepped in and, and tried to to reinvigorate that vibe that you were just talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Don was a, and has been a great mentor to me as well. Um, you know, I, I, in fact, when I was doing freelance writing in 1999 into 2000, at some point um, uh, when salon.com shut down its travel section, um, you know, I, I wrote a piece lamenting the demise of that travel section and that led uh led uh, to the creation of world hum so was, there's a there's a direct line from from salon and your writing to the creation of world hum i think i appeared in that article didn't i wasn't it like the online journalism review or something like that exactly i believe you did yeah yeah, yeah so it's funny how that works and we're talking about a different era of media media but also a different era of travel and eventually i want to bring in the book of the beach and the movie of the beach which which are kind of different in ways that are interesting, even though it's the same story. Um, they were uh, the movie was filmed three years after the book came out, and the changes that are apparent um, are, are interesting to see. But I was just getting travel started on travel in my first big vagabonding journey around the world, and I had done a lot of research. It was a different world back then. It was the world of dial-up internet. And I went to the Lonely Planet Thorn Tree Boards, and all these people were talking about this cult novel called The Beach. And I literally read The Beach while I was flying to Asia to start backpacking. And I realized that there is a Leonardo DiCaprio movie going on there at the same time. And I think in retrospect, it's easy to think, oh, well, here's this obvious idea. But I think I backpacked around Thailand for two weeks before – like. I had this idea, well, what would happen if, if I found some travelers and we tried to recreate the beach, which is you know about these backpackers finding an isolated forbidden island and making a air quotes paradise there. Um, that was the obvious thing, but it, it took me two weeks to realize, well, wait a second, the most exclusive island in Thailand right now is where they're, where they're filming the movie. <laughs> and so um, and so that was a, that was this weird thing that that um, in this strange way, my very first backpacking experience or my long, very first long-term backpacking experience was sort of tainted by reading this somewhat cynical novel about the backpacker experience and about these these sort of jaded characters. What's what what, what was your impression of the novel? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a dark book. Um and um it hardly seems like the sort of book that would inspire many people to to light out, you know, across the globe. Yeah, you know, if you read a lot of media from that time, the author of the book, Alex Garland, um, was interviewed a lot. And when he wrote the book, it was a very dark satire of backpacker culture. And it almost was like a post-colonial critique of travel culture, of the idea that travelers go around the world and they seek out these beautiful places, but they sort of prefer each other's company 
and not just each other's company, but the company of cool, exclusive people as opposed to the to the local people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's it's just, it's this very dark book that ends with sort of a scene of, of mutilation. It sort of ends as a horror story. It doesn't appear in the movie, but um, these certain travelers are killed trying to get to the beach, and the, the travelers on the beach are, are so enraged and sort of insane by that time. It's sort of a Lord of the Flies type story that they end up mutilating the dead bodies. Um, but by the time it became a Leonardo DiCaprio movie in the, in the wake of Titanic, Suddenly, people are saying are asking Alice Garland, "Hey, well, why why did you write this bubblegum book about backpacking?" And Alice Garland is like, "It's not a bubblegum book about backpacking. It's this dark, you know, <laughs> postcolonial book about about you know troubled people who are living superficial lives." So, um, so yeah, there's an interesting I, tension. Go ahead. I, I just recall, uh, you know, when I was. Uh, um, um, going back over the movie recently, I read a few reviews, including Elvis Mitchell's review of the film in um, in the New York Times, and he called it a Colors by Benetton take on Lord of the Flies. Well, I want to get to the specifics of the movie in a second, because it makes some interesting changes from the book, and almost all of them are cosmetic, and almost all of them are in the interest of a really plot-driven Hollywood entertainment. Um but I also I also want to to get into the you know just the the ideas that are behind the book, and behind the story, um, and and what that movie could have wrestled with versus what the the book itself talked about. Um, did you know that I was an extra in that movie? I did not. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so I invaded the set of the movie uh, in January of 1999. I failed, as the listeners will know now, because uh, you've heard the essay. Um, I failed in an interesting way. Um, and then two months later, I applied as an extra. You could apply online. And I got the job. And not only did I get the job, but they, they like, whoever was casting said, oh, well, if you want to try out for traveler number one, you can do so. So I went on to the, 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 the set of the movie, and it was full of backpackers. Obviously, and I think yeah. we, we made about a, a dollar seventy-five an hour, and it was just this weird. Have you ever been a movie, an extra in a movie, Jim? I have been, yes, uh, okay. growing up in Los Angeles several times. Okay, yeah. So you know that, like, just how weird and boring and completely disjointed it is to, <laughs> to be an extra in a movie. There's just a lot of sitting around. A lot of sitting around, yeah. And you're and you're you're the low man on the totem pole. So you eat last. You uh, you are regarded by those on the set with some uh, disdain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, um, I actually wrote about this experience for Salon too. It wasn't nearly as as popular as the Storming the Beach story, in part because it was it was just sort of a side piece to that to that central and more daring story of of trying to invade invade the set of the movie. Um, but I remember it was funny. I, I, I there was a scene where I was in the same area as Leo. I never got on the screen, but he, I, in, in this story for Salon that I wrote in 1999, I think this was two months after Storming the Beach, I kept saying that he, he was saying, um, get it right, asshole, get it right, asshole, like through 15 takes. Well, in the movie, it's, he's actually saying, forget it, all right, asshole. He's, he's, <laughs> he, he's talking to this guy, he, this kid, this American kid that he gave a map to a few months earlier. And the and if you watch the movie, the 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 American kid is bugging him about the island, and he says, "Forget it, all right, asshole." But I thought he said, "Get it right, asshole." So um, it was just <laughs> this, this strange experience where I was just sitting around, joking with the other extras. We had this. We, we tried to pull off this prank where we were going to be reading the the book, The Beach, in the background of the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. <laughs> 
because because that was a pretty accurate take on what backpackers were doing back then. Um, and I eventually got fired. Eventually, this is how much security Leonardo DiCaprio had back then, is that when I was skulking around, like at the cast hotel, and I really did steal uh, Andrew McDonald's Il Basante uh, Italian leather binder. I still have it. It's been ages since I've taken it out. That's great. But Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, security people recognized me, and I was fired. But you'll know this as someone who was an extra once. Um, the stipulation of being fired is they said, oh, well, we have to kick you off the set, but we'll pay you for a full night. And I'm just thinking, yes, <laughs> I don't have to sit around for 10 more hours um, to make my $16 or however much they were paying me for that night. Yeah, that's getting fired is really the best case scenario. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you do, do you remember like like the vibe of 1999? Because it feels like watching reading the book and watching the movie is just such a different travel milieu than it is now. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, it's to go back and watch the movie and to try to recall what times were like back then. I mean, we're talking pre-cell phones. Um, really, the email had just taken off. Uh, web cafes were popping up around the world. Um, but it was a very different time. There was a lot of, um, I think, anxiety about um, how this technology was starting to change things. But we really hadn't seen... Um, the kind of mammoth wave of changes that would follow uh, with uh, with cell technology, um, and to 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 sort of even to recall what it was like back then, it's 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 a bit challenging now because the world's changed so much. It's changed so much and so fast. I think like cell technology really kicked in about ten years after the beach. Um, it was probably the late aughts before uh, cell phones were really in a broad way changing travel. But it's it's interesting how f- quickly things change. You know, if you read the book, nobody has email in the book. The book was set in 1995. It came out in 1996. I got my first email account in 1996. I think I got my first Hotmail account in 1997. Um, and I was some, a somewhat early adopter. So... The last scene of the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio is in an internet cafe, and I want to touch more into these various idiosyncrasies of the movie, simply because the movie ends on sort of this upbeat note where Leonardo DiCaprio opens his excite mail and slowly (laughs) opens this picture, a scanned picture of him and his friends on the beach, sort of glossing over the fact that five people at least have just been murdered on the island. (laughs) Yep. But it's so strange, 20 years later, to see... This dial-up internet connection slowly opening this Excite Mail picture, when that's just the ground one level of travel. And so I want to talk. I want to do a little bit of now versus then talking. But let's bring in the movie itself. Uh, you you recently rewatched the movie, right? I did. What did you make of it? Oh, it's 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 a bit odd to watch it now because um, you know it does feel so dated. Um, I didn't find the characters to be terribly likable. Uh, Leo is not um, the most sympathetic character. Um, I um, And yet, you know, I think there's still a part of me that can relate to, you know, traveling across the world, um, landing somewhere, finding yourself surrounded by what's all too familiar and wanting something more. You know, I think that that, um, that sort of theme is still a, probably as relevant as ever. 
Yeah, it was it was interesting that it feels like the movie was sort of in the wash of Leo's celebrity because Leo does some things or his character Richard does some things in the movies that that simply don't happen in the book. For example, there's he has a this long unrequited crush on Françoise in the in the book whereas in the movie he's like making out with Françoise <laughs> by the midpoint like he's making out in a pool of phosphorescence and he also sleeps with Sal like the the older woman who oversees the camp who in who in the book is an American woman it's played by Tilda Swinton yeah. in, in the movie and Tilda Swinton is sort of this predatory person who just informs Leo's character that she's going to have sex with him during a rice run <laughs> to Copenhagen <laughs> so it's really strange how in the movie, and, and you can disagree with this, but I I was never that fond of the movie. And I think it could be that, that the book, I just reread the book, and the book is actually pretty good. I think I, for years I went thinking, oh, it's sort of a bubblegum book. It's, it's just sort of a, a plot-driven book. But there's some interesting travel observations in the movie. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, Richard, the main character, says, I had first heard of the beach in Bangkok on Khao San Road. And Kaosan Road was backpacker land. Almost all the buildings had been converted into guest houses. There were long-distance telephone booths with aircon. The cafes showed brand-new Hollywood films on video. And you couldn't walk 10 feet without passing a bootleg tape stall. The main function of the street was as a decompression chamber for those about to leave or enter Thailand, a halfway house between east and west. And that's that's just good travel writing. That's exactly how Kaosan Road felt to me. Around the same era, um, Richard, the character, also observes. He says, "One thing I learned from traveling was that the way to get things done was to go ahead and do them. Don't just talk about go to, going to Borneo. Book a ticket, get a visa, pack a bag, and it just happens." So it feels like there's this core of travel observation and wisdom in the beach. Like Alex Garland, who wrote that book, really knew his travel quite well. Um, and then one more thing. I want to get back to Leonardo DiCaprio in a second because I didn't, I, I wasn't that wild about the Leonardo DiCaprio version of Richard. Um, in part because I wasn't sure his nationality was changed. In the book, he's from London. In the book, he's from, or in the movie, he's from America. But it's really, to me, and you can disagree with me, but it, to me, it's, it's hard to know why he's there or what he wants. But in the book, Richard says, collecting memories or experiences was my primary goal when I start, first started traveling. I went about it in the same way as a stamp collector goes about collecting stamps, carrying around with me a mental list of all the things I had yet to do or see. Most of the list was pretty banal. I wanted to see the Taj Mahal, Borobudur, the rice terraces in Bonaway, Angkor Wat. Um, and then later he goes into how those experiences can seem a little bit compromised when you go to Koh Samui and people say, oh, Koh Samui is so last year, you should go to Koh Panyan. And then you go to Koh Panyan and people say, oh, Koh Panyan is over-touristed, you should go to Koh Tao. And then you go to Koh Tao and people say, yeah, it's all, it's all dive shops now. I don't know where to go next. Um, whereas Richard, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, Richard in the movie just seems like this handsome douche who doesn't really have any motivation. What do you think? What, what do you think was driving the Leonardo DiCaprio version of this, of this character? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. He says uh, at the beginning, you know, it doesn't matter really who I am or where I'm from. Um, he's a guy who's on a trip and that's all really we're supposed to know about him. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think ultimately um, 
as he explains it in the movie, what drives him is, uh, you know, getting to Kaosan Road and feeling as though, uh, feeling this sort of Inui boredom, um, and then hearing about this place and thinking, I, this is the adventure I want. Um, I don't want to be surrounded by Westerners and guest houses. Um, and of course, he ultimately finds himself uh, in the in this so-called paradise surrounded by uh, Westerners. Yeah, yeah. There's there's the line about how Sal tells him, I think this is a beach resort for people who don't like beach resorts. But then it sort of becomes a beach resort like any other beach resort. I mean, they they play volleyball and go fishing <laughs> and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I remember at the time is, um, you know, Kaosan Road at the time became this kind of uh, global phenomenon. It was this sort of new thing, um, this street in the middle of Bangkok that was catering exclusively to Western travelers. Um, you know, Susan Orlean wrote a, a New Yorker story about the phenomenon, went to Kaosan Road. Yeah. Um, and you know now, of course, there are there are Kaosan roads um, uh, all over the place, um, and it it doesn't have the same sort of uh, meaning, uh, or at least I don't think there's the same sort of uh, fascination or anxiety around it that that existed back then. Well, I think this really was a time when our perception about how foreign foreign places were was beginning to shift. Um, and as an aside, I remember that Susan Orlean article. And it was a good article, but I remember being irritated that she didn't spend the night on Kaosan Road, that she visited Kaosan Road, but she didn't stay the night there. Um, and to me, the whole point of Kaosan Road is to, is to stay there in this, in this little backpacker ghetto of a place in Bangkok. Yeah, uh, I, I remember that. Um, I thought, though, that she did a good job of sort of capturing the, the transient nature of the Westerners passing through there. Um, certainly what I found when I – I mean, for me, funny – uh, enough. I mean, when I went to to, to Bangkok, uh, Kaosan Road became sort of a tourist attraction that I had to see. You know, like I'd, I'd read about this place um, and was just sort of curious about it. I didn't wind up staying there, but um, it, it became a kind of destination unto itself. I suspect it's still that way. And, you know, I visited there in 2010 on this trip around the world I did with no baggage. And um, I was... It felt very gentrified to me, which is which is such a narcissistic backpacker thing to think, right? You know, <laughs> in 1999, it was like the, the place where all the foreigners hung out. But in 2010, 11 years later, it had a few more McDonald's and the hotels were a little nicer. And so it felt somehow compromised. But I think the whole point is that Cow Sand Road was. It was, this, it was this depressurization zone where it's sort of Thai, but not really, right? Yes. Yeah, a land of uh, banana pants. And cakes and um, uh, English language bookstores and um, maybe a few Thai t-shirts. Yeah, uh, there was what was called at the time the Banana Pancake Trail. Um, and I actually, this winter, traveled on what used to be parts of the Banana Pancake Trail. And those have changed in interesting ways. And so I want to I dig into the changes again um, in a second. But first, I want to I make sure that we get the, the movie covered here. So uh, in the book, we have Richard showing up at Kaosan Road and making his way down to the beach with Francoise and, uh, and Etienne. Uh, in the movie, it's about the same, but it's not an unrequited crush. He actually has a, a little love affair with Francoise as well as Sal. And then instead of having this horror movie ending, um, gosh, what happens? What, what would you say is the plot of the movie once it gets to the beach? 
Uh, well, I, I mean, there's definitely an arc where Richard settles in, um, and at first it seems sort of idyllic. Um, then, uh, then things start to go south. Um, we have the, um, the spear uh, fishermen getting attacked by sharks. Um, and one of them, uh, uh, is sort of taken out to pasture so that the others don't have to listen to his suffering. Um, and I think that's one of the big turning points in the film. Um, and when it becomes very clear that, uh, this may not be the paradise that, that, uh, Richard thought it was. Um, and then of course there's the anxiety around other travelers who, who have, uh, been given a map by Richard, um, whether they're going to arrive, um, and it sort of it becomes a darker and darker, um, uh, and really until, as you say, about the last few minutes of the film, when there's a when there's an odd, um, happier ending. Yeah, there's sort of this slow burn. It's it's a it's a good tension device, and it's it's taken from the book, where basically Richard gives the map away to some Americans. And in the book, it's a little bit more nuanced because you have to realize Richard didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't know what the beach was. And so, uh, you know, Daffy had given him this map to a place that he didn't know if it even existed. So he gave it, he gave the map away. And then slowly we see these travelers coming in and making uh, their way closer and closer to the beach. Another thing that happened in the book that's not in the movie, which is interesting, which may, which could have been hard to depict is that um, everybody gets sick. They eat some bad squid and um, Alex Garland has since gone on to be a screenwriter and film director, and you can really see his cinematic chops in the beach, which, again, is a better book than I remembered. Um, it, it's very well, well observed from sort of a travel writing perspective. But it's also really structured like a screenplay that basically everybody on the beach gets sick around the same time that the sharks attack the Swedes, which is the same in the movie, which is about the same time that the people on the raft arrive. And so, the, and there's also a lot of tension between the people on the beach. So, a lot of these factors that work in the movie come from the book. Um, and actually, Richard, in the movie as in the book, he ends up basically strangling or smother, smothering one of the Swedes. Um, in the book, though, the characters end up going, finding their way to Bangkok, asking for money from their parents, which is interesting. Another thing I want to get back to because, you know, parents have actually in the, at the end of the movie, um, Leonardo DiCaprio ignores an email from his parents to open this picture of his friends and him at the beach. But yet as the moviegoers, we're thinking, wait a second, seven minutes ago, he smothered a Swede. Like he, <laughs> he strangled a, a dying Swede with his bare hands and saw, and saw four Americans and Germans get machine gunned in a marijuana field. And now he's getting the feels from watching this, this scanned <laughs> picture in his excite email account. So I just thought it was interesting. I don't know if that was if like a darker ending tested more poorly or why ex what choices went into that, but it just felt like such an incongruous way to to end the movie. Yeah, it's a huge disconnect. I have to think that audiences did not like the uh, the darker ending uh, test audiences, or you know, it was just a decision perhaps made at the studio level before they even tested it. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels it feels like a very cart before before the horse sort of thing that that it wasn't an organic uh, thing, but somehow a, a darker ending didn't quite work for people. You know, in the movie or in the book, when Richard is talking about um, calling home, 
because in the in the book and in the movie, there's a scene in the movie where Leo is like at a phone booth, that old technology that barely exists anymore, a phone booth, calling home and basically he's telling his parents how they don't understand. In the movie, we actually learn that, that Richard hasn't called his parents for three months. And let's think about that for a second. Three months. I mean, in this age when, when email is ubiquitous and everybody is advertising their travels on social media, that just seems so strange. I, I think parents... In 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 the mid '90s, when this book was written, may not have been freaked out that much by a traveler who went around the world, and didn't get in touch that much because it was expensive to call home. But three months did would like let's look at how this whole travel scenario might play in 2019. That it, it, it just feels like a parent would not tolerate <laughs> not hearing at all from their child for three months. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, as the father of a 12-year-old who I think will be doing more traveling on her own in the future, I hope, uh, I would not certainly not tolerate that. Um, I recall traveling around uh, Europe in about 1996 uh, and calling home about every three days, and mm -hmm. it, it always felt like an event, uh, and I had to find a phone and, and uh, you know, had to make sure that I was could figure out how I was going to pay for it or if it was going to be collect or... Um, but three months is an awfully long time. It, it really is. And another thing, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about this, is that we have in the movie and in the book to a certain extent, but definitely in the movie, we have a bunch of sort of vain, good-looking, and self-satisfied travelers hanging out on a beach. And the movie version of the beach is a lot nicer than the book version. The book version, they, they sleep in tents and they, they sleep in a longhouse, but the actual little fake beach resort they have in the movie looks like a real beach resort. Um, what do you think? It, it just feels like in this day and age, young, good-looking, vain travelers couldn't help but but broadcast this on Instagram. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking about that before uh before we started speaking today. I mean, what would what would drive this this um book or movie in in 20 19 2020 and I, I have to think uh, instagram would be at the center of it uh, um and um uh you know it, it may be that instead of uh being handed a map by daffy uh you know richard had seen this uh this photo on instagram and perhaps whoever posted it hadn't quite identified the island and so he was on this quest to find this this island i mean um you see so many reports these days that instagram is driving 30 40 50 percent of all travel decisions travel destination decisions wow um so uh yeah i mean i think instagram has kind of transformed um the way people travel and and um again it's just uh it's back in in 1999 it's couldn't imagine what's interesting that the place where the beach was filmed Maya Beach on Koh Phi Phi Lay in Thailand had to close down to tourists a year ago. Um, in June of 2018, the Thai National Park Service decided that too many people were coming there, that the coral had like 90% of the coral had died. Mm. Um, you had boats waiting in line for people to get on the beach. You would have 3,500 tourists a day walking on the beach. And oftentimes it was people going in for the selfie harvest, right? Uh, the fact that Chinese tourism um, was really booming and has been booming was a factor in this because it's one thing for, for a Richard 
uh, or a Sal type character to go around the world to Thailand. But if you live in China, you know, Thailand is just right next door. It's like going to Cancun or something. Um, and so the Chinese factor was one, one um, factor in Maya Beach being closed. And, and as of this recording, Maya Beach is still closed to tourists. You cannot at this time in 2019 go to Maya Beach. <laughs> but also it feels like – I don't know if this was reported, but it feels like the Instagramification of that beach, which was popularized by this movie and its own beauty – led to the fact that it eventually became shut down. And one more thing I'll throw out there, Jim, before you can talk about your own experiences in this part of the world, is that when I was storming the beach 20 years ago, when I was riding vagabonding there 18 years ago, I knew about the Banana Pancake Trail so intimately that I wanted to go to Lake Toba in Sumatra, and I just didn't. I was writing the book. Well, I went there this winter. I went to Lake Toba in Sumatra, which is this beautiful volcanic caldera in the middle of Sumatra that has had a sleepy travel community hanging out there um, on this island on a lake in an island for years. And it was mostly empty. I was there in January of this year, and I had Lake Toba and all of Sumatra mostly to myself. And it was a mystery that I spent a whole month trying to figure out because in 1999, that was connected to Maya Beach. Maya Beach and Lake Toba and other places in Bali and in India were part of a very well-trodden trail back then. What I found out is that these days, you don't have to take trains and buses to get from Bangkok to Bali. You can fly there for a couple hundred bucks, you know, maybe even less than 100 bucks. And so these places that were overtrodden, obviously Maya Beach is still over overtrodden, but Sumatra is less of a backpacker haunt because you don't have to, to if you if you want to save money, you can fly to Bali. You don't have to take a bunch of chicken buses to get there. Um, so what was your experience of travel in the area? And um, did, did you see a, a visible banana pancake trail when you were there? And have you been back? I have not been back uh, uh, to that part of Southeast Asia since then, since uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. um, but sure, yeah, I was, I mean, there was a, it was a kind of banana pancake trail that I was on. It was, you know, I think um, as much as anything, I thought about it as the Lonely Planet Trail, um, because of course, the Lonely Planet Guide to Southeast Asia was such a um, classic sort of popular guidebook of that era. And, um, and, uh, you know, at the, the guest houses that had made the Lonely Planet Guide to Southeast Asia, I think were doing very well. And those that, um, that hadn't been included in the book were not. And um, I recall going to, um, walking into one uh, guest house or hostel and, and finding that, um, that they hadn't liked their review in the Lonely Planet and had a sign posted by the door explaining that um, Lonely Planet had gotten the description of their place wrong and that uh, travelers needed to give them a chance. Um, so, but, but it, it was a similar phenomenon, you know, it was, um, these were places that were on a kind of trail that had been, uh, mapped out long before most travelers arrived. Um, and, um, and in my case, you know, I, I wound up at, at points finding myself frustrated at, um, when I was adhering, adhering too closely to these sort of lonely planet, um, uh, itinerary and found myself having to increasingly veer off looking for different sorts of places. I think you might be onto something there that maybe banana pancake trail was, was the nickname because the banana pancakes are, are sort of this sweet snack that you could find in, 
in in Thailand, and it was just it, banana pancakes were easier to eat than a lot of more challenging Thai or Asian food, and so that was sort of a tongue in cheek description. Whereas if you call it the Lonely Planet Trail, that's a real thing. Lonely Planet Lonely Planet was the media that sort of tied these places together. And so these days, a, a given destination might court Instagrammers, Instagram quote air influencers. We're, we're back in the day, Lonely Planet um, influenced decisions perhaps in ways that, that Instagram influences them now. Um, and I think that maybe one reason why Lake Toba and Sumatra was on the Lonely Planet Trail in 1999, or on the Banana Pancake Trail in 1999, is that it was in the Lonely Planet. Well, these days, People don't use Lonely Planet. You know, they're looking, they're looking, people do use Lonely Planet, but maybe it's less of an institutional authority. And so I'd be interested to know what you think, but it feels like when you're online, there's still a tendency for travelers to cluster, but it's more because of top 10 lists and, and because of beautiful pictures and because it's of social media buzz. Whereas before, people's itinerary may have been predetermined by Lonely Planet decisions. Whereas now, maybe travel decisions are predetermined by sort of a social media and online buzz. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, so much has been been written about how fragmented media consumption has become um, in in the last ten, fifteen years. You know, with the rise of Netflix and streaming services, and I think the same thing has sort of happened in in um, in travel media and. Uh, Lonely Planet certainly doesn't have the sort of monopoly on uh, information, um, guide information that it did um, back around 1999 or 2000. Um, and I think, yeah, people are, are, are now getting their travel ideas from listicles, from Instagram, from TripAdvisor, um, and any number of other sources. And um, I think that that has probably led to, um, to travelers really sort of spreading out more I mean, it might not be an altogether bad thing. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully what, what ties both of these eras together is that the, at the end of the day, if you are a savvy traveler at all, if you have some initiative, um, then regardless of what Lonely Planet said in 1999 or what Instagram says in 2019 or what bucket lists say, because bucket lists have really blown up in, in the last 10 years or so, that you go to see the Instagram image or the local Lonely Planet recommendation and then you travel on your own a little bit. You walk around a little bit. You grab some local buses. And pretty soon you're having a journey that goes beyond what those prescriptions were to begin with. Yeah, one hopes, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it occurs to me, and, and we, we can maybe sort of think out loud about how the beach might work in 2019 or if, if it even can. Because, you know, I think one reason a lot of, a lot of teen dramas – like Stranger Things um, these days are set in the 1980s is that it evokes an era before the smartphone had changed the way people communicated. Little kids who wanted to communicate with each other rode bikes to each other's houses, and then they had conversations. Whereas in the era of the smartphone, Stranger Things taking place in, in 2016 or 2019 would be a different story because obviously you can text your friends. You have a different uh, starting point for communication and entertainment. Similarly, I think travelers, you know, the idea of a, a top secret beach in the era of Google Maps might not be as as relevant, might not be as salient. You know, the, there's this idea that to an extent the world has been discovered, the world has been shared um, 
And and I don't know, like people who occupied a secret beach in 2019 might have to use some fairly sophisticated inscri- encryption to convince people on Instagram that their beach is in the <laughs> Philippines when in fact it is in Thailand. I mean, could the beach happen? Could Could the beach as a movie be plausible in 2019? And if so, how would it have to be framed? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I I don't know. I mean, I guess um, for starters, you'd have to buy into the idea that there's an island without cell service and without um, Wi-Fi, which I suppose is still possible in 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 uh, many parts of the world um, if the island is small enough and largely uninhabited. Um, that would be critical, uh, because I can, you know, can you imagine Richard, uh, as soon as these guys get attacked by sharks, he's texting, uh, calling, uh, the Thai equivalent of 911 and getting, uh, medical aid in there. If he, at least if, if I think, I believe at that point, um, in the, in the movie, he still had a conscious and he was still conscious and was still, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing. Um. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if that movie is going to work today, um, he either has to have, there have, to, there have to be no cell phones on the island or there's no cell service. And that, even that is a kind of a big hurdle at this point. That was one interesting factor of both the movie and the book that I'm not sure if it would translate directly today. Um, I think it's interesting how they take uh, the wounded Swede Christo out of the main camp to his own tent away from the camp so they don't have to think about him. Because in a way, in a way, the beach is a satire of backpacker culture, but it's also a a core philosophical idea is about the inevitability of change. That basically, they were trying to create this place where time stood still, this perfect place where you can enjoy the permanent vacation. And I think in real life, the beach might be kind of boring. Like after your after your thirty seventh day of playing volleyball and catching fish and enjoying the beach. You're sort of thinking, well, okay, well, what next? You know, I want to go to some interesting part of, of India or China and experience something cultural. That could just be me as a traveler. Um, but amid this superficial day that happened, you know, the day which sort of resembles itself again and again in the book and the movie, these travelers don't get to get, know each other very well. And in fact, in the book, Richard says, quote, second names felt connected to the world, maybe because they were linked to family and home. So they never used or asked. It's funny. Uh, it's a funny thought that if today, for some inexplicable reason, I wanted to track down any of the people I once knew on the beach, I'd have no better clue uh, to work from than their nationality and a fading memory of a face. Whereas you think of in, in the social media uh, era, you, you sort of, when you friend each other on social media, you sort of learn either people's real last name or their fake traveler last name. And when they do the funeral for uh, one of the Swedish travelers in the book, the eulogy, it's one of the most wickedly satirical parts of the novel. They give the, they give the eulogy and the chef is like, oh, yeah, you know, this guy, um, I forget his name. I think it's called Sten. He says, well, Sten brought in big fish and they didn't taste very well, but they, you were able to cut up that big fish and feed more people. And then somebody else said, well, Sten was okay at soccer, but... He never cheated or got mad. And that was his eulogy, that they, they were literally sharing this space with these people in a superficial way and didn't know them at all. And, I, and, and these days, I think through social media, we can know each other in a superficial way, but at a granular level. We know, their, 
we know their last names, but also all 50 countries that they've been to in the last five years, all of their breakups and personal details of their lives. And so that just seems that just seems so anomalous now that, yes, of course, Richard, Richard could call in medical help for the Swedes, uh, but he would also know, you know, probably through he could he could figure out through social media how to contact the Swedes family. You know, it just seems like a sense of isolation that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, you're you're sort of attached to people for life who you meet on the road these days, right? Um, the other, the other, when you when you talk about the eulogy, I'm thinking of the funeral scene in the film. Um, sort of a side note, but I loved uh, the fact that um, the guitar player is singing um, Bob Marley's Redemption song, um, which you know I remember traveling around back then, um, hearing Bob Marley everywhere. Um, he was the, it, I mean, he's, his music still is to a certain degree, but, but I think, uh, uh, even more so back then was this kind of global, um, um, music is sort of, it, it was, I heard it, um, uh, across Asia, in Europe, um, in Latin America. Um, it was probably more, uh, universally known than, than anything else at the time, at least in, in sort of a pop culture realm. That's really interesting, and I think that's something that's a little detail that the movie really gets right in a way that the book doesn't. The book, in a way, is strangely dated in a Gen X way. Like it was, it was, it was sort of evocative of young people when it came out in 1996. Um, and Richard is sort of obsessed with old Vietnam War movies and TV shows and books, um, in a way that a young person today would just think, "What? You know, like Tour of Duty, Apocalypse Now? I think my dad watched that." You know. Whereas they're singing Redemption Song in the movie. And Jim, I was in Sri Lanka a couple months ago, and there are still Bob Marley bars in Sri Lanka. <laughs> and I'm sure that Bob Marley bars and the legend, uh, his, his greatest hits, the legend CD by Bob Marley, I'm sure you can go almost anywhere in the world, and that is still more timeless than a lot of Richard's Vietnam War successions uh, or obsessions in the book. So I think that while the movie sort of fumbled a lot of interesting things from the book. It is more timeless in that way that people sing redemption song. Uh, the Vietnam War tropes are not as touched on in the movie. But yeah, for sure. I think there's a book out there somewhere that somebody could write about how Bob Marley conquered the world. Because any place <laughs> yeah. you see young people chilling, and it's not just travelers. In, in Sri Lanka, the dude with dreadlocks who owned the bar and was Sri Lankan and, and was probably Hindu, and Hindus have their own dreadlock tradition. But this dreadlocked guy, I think he had taken his Hindu-style dreadlocks and sort of had had uh, assimilated them into this Bob Marley vibe. And he was a happy guy, and the people hanging out at that restaurant in Sri Lanka were sort of happy to be there, I think, in the same way that that kind of backpacker restaurant existed in 1999 yeah i believe it and it's so interesting that um that that his music endures in that way i mean i remember traveling in some parts of southeast asia i think i was in bali and seeing um uh scorpions uh you know the german rock band scorpions graffiti on buses and um they seem to be weirdly popular in parts of Southeast Asia at that time. And I suspect that music hasn't endured as um, sort of as well as, as Bob Marley's music has over there and, and around the world. 
Yeah, no, it, it's funny. Um, I went to Henry Rollins' travel slideshow, Henry Rollins, the former Black Flag singer, who's a big traveler. As, as you know, I, you interviewed him for, uh, for World Hum years ago. Yeah. And he talks about seeing a, a woman in a Black Flag t-shirt in Indonesia, but he also talks about seeing Black Flag t-shirts for sale alongside Avenged Sevenfold, um, which is a band that I know nothing about, but apparently it's interesting. When I was in Sumatra this winter, Sumatran people knew Avenged Sevenfold lyrics, um, <laughs> and I don't know Avenged Sevenfold lyrics. And it's funny how in 1999, when I was traveling and when I was storming the beach and when I was working as an extra on the beach, as travelers, the the, the kind of cassettes that we could buy on Kaosan Road were Smash Mouth and Blink-182 and Sugar Ray, right, <laughs> and Fat yeah. Boy Slim and Moby and, and other bands that maybe have endured more. But in a way, the cutting-edge tapes that you could buy on Kaosan Road have been in the garbage for 18 years now, right? <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah. Bob Marley still gets played around the world. I, I, I'm curious if any listeners are aware of this, of, of Bob Marley falling out of fashion. But based on my experience in Sumatra and Sri Lanka in particular, I think Bob Marley is still growing strong. hes I'm, I hate to say this, but he's like... He's like the McDonald's or Microsoft of of popular music. <laughs> he's the he's the Energizer Bunny. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think maybe it's because he 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 latches onto a vibe. And you know, Bob Marley as a musician was sort of political in a way that was specific to his time. But what has what has um, endured is Redemption Song or Three Little Birds or these little songs of hope and happiness and maybe and maybe dope and happiness that. Yeah. Someone in a traditional culture like perhaps Sri Lanka can listen to Bob Marley, hang out with Western backpackers, and sort of rebel against his own culture in a way that dovetails with the with the with the with the outside travelers who are traveling through the country at the time. And another funny detail about the book is that in the book Richard meets um, Thai people who sort of speak in hippie English. They'll say, "Hey, man, it's cool," you know, which. At the time the beach the beach novel came out in 1996, the Vietnam War had been over for like 21 years. You know, it was in recent memory. The hippie hippie trail era was not that long ago. Um, whereas it seems like Bob Marley has has outlived all of those old hippie tropes. That what's left of the hippie era is sort of a, a Bob Marley version. Bob Marley, who died in 1980. He, he he is like a distillation of all these hippie ideas. As hippie people have gotten older, we're left with with Bob Marley and a few other shorthand pieces of what things were like in the 1970s. What do you think? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, you know some of the themes that you mentioned, uh, of the songs that you mentioned, are are pretty timeless. Um, the sound feels, you know, it's certainly dated, and that he was largely just uh, accompanied by an acoustic guitar but um you know i think the music has has sort of aged well um and it's it's something that can be played easily but with any by anybody with a guitar and um that's probably has helped to um uh to sort of to lead to its longevity you know it's funny this came up in the conversation of how would the movie be different in 2019 maybe the only thing that would be the same is bob marley songs right like the 2019 version of the beach would somehow have to involve encrypted instagram and you know the possibility of calling in a helicopter for sten when he gets his insides chomped out by a shark um but bob bob marley would be the same <laughs> i'd like to think so 
Well, one, one thing that, that happens in the book and the movie that, that's easy to forget is that this island has a marijuana field on it, is that basically local, um, under-the-radar, for lack of a better, organized crime also has a finger in this island. And, and that could be one way that this could that you could get away with telling this story in 2019, is that despite our interconnectedness, that was sort of a dangerous place to be, not because of and 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 the book drives this home better than the movie that the, that the reason that people leave this island alone in the national park is is not really because um, it's isolated, but because there's sort of illegal activity happening there. Uh, and so I wonder if maybe the, the marijuana field and the dangers inherent in having a marijuana field and and armed patrols. Um, exploring one part of the island. I wonder if that could be one reason still in 2019 that could make this place isolated, that its very danger could make it more uh, rarefied. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, in that sense, it's 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 pretty contemporary. Um, you can imagine the same thing happening in many parts of Latin America, Colombia or Mexico. Um, and, uh, you know, the danger is really from the the drug lords who are protecting their turf. And, you know, in the movie and the book, the drug lords get upset when more and more travelers keep showing up. In 2019, the, the, the unspoken code could mean, okay, you can stay on this island full of weed fields, but don't tweet it. Don't put it on Instagram. And so that, <laughs> right. pl- that plot point in a 2019 movie could be that some, some knucklehead just can't help but put in a selfie of himself with his, um, with his freshly speared milkfish on the beach and and that becomes the plot point that that leads to the dissolution of the beach itself. Yeah, I mean that might be Richard's uh, fatal move, right? Um, that really gets Sal to turn on him. Yeah, yeah. That that somehow Richard is a pretty narcissistic and 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 sociopathic person in the book and the movie, as is Sal to a certain extent. But it almost feels like our narcissism in 2019 is subtler because it's more universal. Um, when we were when we traveled on that lonely planet trail trail in 2019 the lonely planet itself told us to be careful about taking people's pictures because that was sort of this colonial gesture sometimes that people the local people didn't have didn't necessarily wield their cameras in the same way as we did well having just been in sumatra in indonesia in 2019 um local people in sumatra use their their photos which are on their phones now in the same ways that we do i i pose for as many sumatran photos Probably more so than than um, I ask Sumatrans to pose for my photos. I mean, I think photos are very much a part of the conversation now, and I think in, in the book Richard said he's not really interested in photos. Um, and at the end of the movie, we see this photo and it, and it and it bring of the beach and it brings this sentimental thing in him. And so I think that narcissism of, of of broadcasting our image in these exotic places around the world has become much more ubiquitous and much more subtle, and it would require. Um, a very special gesture, a, a very special prohibition on photos coming out of an island with a weed farm on it uh, as a plot point in 2019. Yeah, I mean, but I like what you're saying. It sounds to me as though uh, what you're saying is that the fact that people around the world, including in Sumatra, have phones and cameras um, can actually help kind of bridge the divide between travelers and locals in a way that um, didn't occur back in 1999 when, you know, it was largely the traveler who was 
you know, curing the Nikon and taking the images. Yeah, I, I think too that that post-colonial idea that comes through, especially in in the book The Beach, where air quotes paradise is a place with beautiful beaches and no local people, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that that's still a danger. I think sometimes still travelers will avoid local cultures at the expense uh, at the expense of those local cultures or even of, of self knowledge. Um, but I think this sort of smartphone technology for all of its for all of its weaknesses and there are some places where smartphones are sort of making us dumber as travelers it does make us more connected because local people as often as as not will have smartphones too they'll be taking pictures they'll be mugging for each other's pictures and they're not afraid to mug for your pictures and in a way if my experience in Sumatra bears out they really sort of want you to mug for their pictures too they want they want the big tall pasty guy to be in their photos as well <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of encouraging. And so we've been we've been talking for quite a while now. We should probably wind it down a little bit. But I, I know that you went to Costa Rica recently uh, with your daughter. What what is your what is your um, take on travel in 2019? Given the fact that you went to Costa Rica, which is really the Thailand of Central America, quite recently. What's <laughs> what's your vibe about how people are traveling now versus how they traveled then? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I. Um, I was, I was wanted to take my daughter on a surf trip. I grew up surfing. She's learning to surf. I wanted to take her to a place that was uh, foreign yet sort of familiar. Um, that was fairly safe. Uh, Costa Rica seemed to sort of fit the bill. Um, what interested me was that I had gone to uh, this beach, this beach town, surf town up in uh, the Guanacaste province back in about uh, 2000, um, no, more like 1998. And it was a very small little surf town um, with a few shops and restaurants. Uh, and I, I wanted to go back and see how it had changed over the years, in part because it was featured in this film, The Endless Summer 2. Um, that was a follow-up to the classic surf film in which the stars of The Endless Summer, um, you know, this movie that famously had these surfers traveling around the globe. Famous famous the- travel movie. I mean, really is an iconic – it's not a dramatic. It's a documentary, but it, it is one of the iconic travel movies of the 20th century. It really is, and it's uh, – you know, there are, there are parts of the film that make me cringe now, sort of the post-colonial attitudes, but – um, it's still one of my favorite travel movies and, and, um, you know, I, I can't help but get a, a big, uh, dose of wanderlust when I watch it. Um, but interesting what, what had happened is that they had gone back, they had gone to Costa Rica to film the endless summer too. And this helped to transform this little surf town into a, uh, into a quite a big surf town. Um, and the town had changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. Uh, it's now harder to find Costa Rican food in this town, but it's very easy to find Thai food and, uh, you know, falafels and um, Bob Marley songs. Um, my my sort of – but I was going back kind of expecting that. In 1999 or 2000, I might have been feeling more anxious about it. Um, you know, and, and looking for some sort of more authentic travel experience. And, and now I think that's just, this is just such a part of the travel landscape and I've sort of made my peace with it and, and both its pros and its cons. Um, certainly in Costa Rica too, you have travelers who are, are, are going to very high end, uh, you know, secure resorts where, um, Costa Rican, uh, culture is largely sort of 
devoid. Um, um, but I, you know, I, 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 I find that, um, um, and maybe it's just because I've gotten older, but I can enjoy places like, like Kaosan Road or like this surf town in Costa Rica more than I probably could have when I was a younger traveler. Yeah, you know, this is something that I discovered the more I traveled. I, I invaded the set of the beach my very first month of vagabonding across Asia. Um, but the more I traveled, the more I realized that this backpacker phenomenon was not specific to Thailand. That the story of the beach, fictional though it was, could have been set in Costa Rica. It could have been set in parts of Africa. It could have been set in, set in parts of Australia or Mexico or many other parts of the world. It was just set in Thailand because Alex Garland, who actually was sort of keen on the Philippines, decided to set it in, in, in Thailand because Thailand rep represented a certain backpacker mindset, which I think was also evident in places like, like Egypt or Costa Rica back in the day, and is still evident um, in other parts of the world as we travel now. And I think if you're walking down the beach in Costa Rica or in Kenya or Mozambique, or in Indonesia or New Zealand, and you hear Bob Marley, that you're probably in this zone, right? That you're probably <laughs> in what I eventually called for Salon, another article I wrote back in the day, the trans-global beach nation. That this is, that they're sure that there was, the beach was set in Thailand, but um, the hearing redemption song and eating banana pancakes or Thai food could happen in many globalized parts of the world. Yeah, and, you know, I think... Um... The question that the travelers have wrestled with in, in recent years is, you know, uh, what what represents an authentic experience? And um, it's sort of driven a, a large part of the travel economy in the last 10 or 15 years, travelers in search of authenticity, whatever that means. Um, and I guess, you know, what I found in Costa Rica is that the, the, this is its own sort of place and it's its own sort of weird global beach culture authenticity um, um, it's not necessarily it's certainly not you know uh, the kind of pure Costa Rican culture experience that you might have elsewhere it's its own thing but um, and I think that you know we've now had uh, at least a few decades to, to to come to terms with that yeah well the idea of authenticity underpins a lot of themes in the beach that people are coming to places like Hadrin Beach the big party beach in the mid 90s or the early 90s or to Kosamui, and they're realizing that it's full of dudes from London and from Nebraska, right? Um, but the satire of the beach is that the authenticity that they seek is not really authentic. It's it's sort of a non-Thai authenticity of travel. Um, and so it occurs to me that when you and I hung out in Thailand in 2001, or when I was storming the beach in 2000, we were either in our 20s or just barely out of our 20s. And one mm -hmm. thing that the... That the um, the travelers might see as inauthentic are dads, right? Our guys in their 40s, our guys who in 2019 are you and me, Jim. You know, they're, 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 they're no, <laughs> say it ain't so. And so I think it's good to, to, to acknowledge that one thing that's, that is being, that is under a lens in the beach is youth. And you and I were, were a lot younger back then than, than we are now. And yeah. so, so I think when you when you're talking about bringing your daughter to Costa Rica, um, we have a lot of perspective, and we have a lot of um, you know both of us. You 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 founded World Hum. We've both been in the travel writing world for a long time, and it's funny that like someone who we spoke of before, Don George, who really gave us art, or who mentored us as travel writers, 
Um, him and his generation of, of very talented travel writers and editors predate us by a generation, right? Um, and so sure. when you talked about bringing your daughter to Costa Rica, I was thinking, ooh, you know, um, that Richard from the beach would look, take one look at you or me and think in 2019 and think, oh, old people, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would not have been invited to the beach. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to my old writings from Thailand around the time the beach was filmed, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.